Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, uh, thank you so much for those who helped fill in while Kathy and I were gone. And thank you so much. Many of you sent cards, very sweet cards, and I, and I appreciate that so much. Those of you who sent cards uh, regarding the death of my brother. My father was the pastor of Centralpas Baptist Church for 38 and a half years, and my brother was the pastor of Centralpas Baptist, Centralpas Baptist, then later Community Church, for 20 years. So it's going to be a real uh, struggle for that church, so please be in prayer for them. We're talking about real hope. We're talking about real hope, and that's what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians. We're not going to quit until we're done with the, the book, and we have a ways to go. But today we're talking about the way out. Have you ever been someplace where you needed the way out? One of my first summer jobs, or one of my jobs as, actually I started in working full-time when I was 14 years old and then kept going on, but when I was 19, I got a job at, at Kenworth in Kansas City making diesel trucks, and the first summer job they gave me there when I came in for the summer was to sand bumpers. That sounds like a pretty easy job. They did it a little differently because their bumpers were all flat, and what they would do is they had a... A, a, a big sanding uh, station set up there for you. It was a belt sander, and it was 14 feet long, and it was about 20 inches wide. The belt traveled at over 60 miles an hour, and it was this big, huge belt that you stood in front of you. You put the bumper underneath it, and then you took this 40-pound weight that had a handle, and you would go back and forth across this 14-foot sander, pushing the sandpaper down into the metal. And the idea was to hone it so that you could see your reflection so they could send it out and get it chromed. So what we were doing is we were taking the steel bumpers, setting them up, sanding them until they shone, until you could see your, your reflection in it, and you had so many that you had to do in the evening. Well, think about this. It was Kansas City. It was humid. It was most... I worked from 4 to midnight, so you came in at the heat of the day. Many days, 95 degrees, 90% humidity. You had to wear a full face shield. You had to wear goggles because it was very loud. You had to wear all the safety equipment. And so it was hugely hot. Hated the job. And at the end of the first night, I came to my foreman, and he said, Hey, night, you didn't get all of the bumpers done. And then when you don't get them done, you have to stay late. When you stay late, I have to stay late. And this is not a good thing. So he encouraged me not to do, ever do that again. After the second night, I got them done in time by not taking a lunch break and not taking any other break. I worked straight through for eight hours to get all the bumpers done. And I came to the foreman and I said, I did all of my bumpers. I got them done in eight hours. How can I get off this job? And he said, we always give this job to the college kids because they think they're so smart. And he said, we've never had a college kid work this job more than two weeks before he begged to, to leave the company. And I said, well, you're paying me a huge amount of money, $6.50 an hour. Who would leave making, you understand minimum wage was a buck and a quarter. I mean, six fifty was huge. And I said, how can I get another job? He says, it's easy. If you master this job, if you learn to switch those belts by yourself instead of having to call somebody else to do it when they get worn down, if you can not only get the number done that you're supposed to, but you get extra ones done, if you can get more than, get all of them done you're supposed to, plus three more, then we will give you another job. Seven days later, I got all of them that I was supposed to get done and five more and went to the foreman and said, I'm ready for my next job. There's a way out. Master it. Master it. 
In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and on the back of your uh, bulletin, you'll see that you have an outline. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It's not Philippians. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance, endurance. Perseverance, more than just enduring, it's, it's excelling at that. It, it teaches you to excel when it's the toughest Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And what we're going to look at today is God uses the worst things in our life to mature us. God uses the worst things in our life, not that he causes them, but he uses them to bring us to completeness in him so that we find in him the strength, the direction, the, 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 the resources to do those things that we could not do. He gives us a way out. And we're going to look at two things in, in chapter 10. First, first question that we're going to ask is, what do I need to learn? What do I need to learn? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they, were, and that they all passed through the sea. What is he talking about? He's talking about Moses and the children of, of Israel who came out of Egypt. They all came out. They went through the Red Sea. The cloud was the cloud that led them in the, in the daytime, the fire that led them at night. And so they were all under the cloud. They were led by the cloud, and they, they all passed through the sea. Now look at what Paul does here. He makes an analogy out of this. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, nowhere in the New Old Testament does it say that this was a baptism, but Paul is saying it's as if they were going through this process, this rite, this ritual, to remind them of what was happening. Look at verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And this sounds very strange to us. What is this spiritual food? Well, they had manna every morning. We've been on vacation. When I'm on vacation, generally what I look for is anything that says donut for, for the morning. When I'm on vacation, Krispy Kreme is my best friend. We found that there was a supermarket called Publix that had homemade cinnamon rolls with pecans and caramel on top. I, I got embarrassed the third day when the guy knew my name. They all had the manna. They, they had food provided for them every morning when they woke up. They had the water that came from the rock. One time Moses was to strike the rock. The second time he was to speak to it. But did you notice what Paul says? The rock really was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the rock. And, and Paul says, Don't, they didn't understand it wasn't about some physical rock that they struck or that they talked to. The rock, really the person that, that provided the water was Jesus. It was Christ. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, what is he saying? He says, listen, we need to, to learn a lesson here. All of these people came out, 2 million people, 600,000 adults, uh, 600,000 men were counted, plus all of their wives and children. Must have been at least 2 million. 2 million people come out of Egypt. God provides for them every morning, but most of their bodies are scattered in the desert. What is he saying? Verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. 
We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And, And again, Paul is reciting Old Testament history to them to remind them what happened to Israel. Then look at verse 10. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. He's given us these examples. He's given us these things to teach us something about what we need to learn. What do we need to learn from this? Three things. Number one, I need to learn to, that my actions have consequences. I learned to, need to learn that my actions have consequences. We all know that actions have consequences. We just don't understand that it's my actions. We always think, that some, we think it's somebody else's action. We always think it's someone else's doing that, that, that reflects on us. But it's what we do. To take ownership of that. And Paul compared the actions of the Israelites to what we do as believers. And God had shown them incredible grace. They they didn't do anything in Egypt to deserve to to be freed, to be rescued, and yet God rescued them. He showed them grace. He showed them grace when they went through the Red Sea. He showed them grace when when they were leaving Egypt. They said to their captors, we would like some gold and silver. And the people gave them their jewelry as they're leaving. Who does that? Who does that? Who takes slaves and gives them their valuables knowing that they're leaving that night? No one does that. God showed them grace after grace. He opened the Red Sea. They walked on dry land. The Egyptian army, one of the most powerful armies in the world at that time, was decimated when the Red Sea closed over them and they were drowned. And Paul equates their experience with ours. And you say, you know what, Pastor? Maybe you haven't followed me in my life. I don't have any Red Seas opening for me. Uh, Pastor, I I don't know about you, but I'm not experiencing the same thing. I'm not having manna falling from heaven. I mean, I've been praying just that I can pay my mortgage. Pastor, I don't know if you understand. My life is not like the people's life in Israel because God is not providing. Are you breathing this morning? God is providing. Is your heart beating? God is providing. Did you have food in the last week? God is providing. We take for granted so much of the stuff, and we think it's something we've done. And God has said from the beginning, I'm the one who provides. And what was their response? After he did all of those things, what did they do? They grumbled. I love that. If you look up the Greek word for grumble, it sounds like... If you look up the Hebrew word for grumble, it sounds like... If you look up the English word for for grumble, it sounds like... all sounds the same, doesn't it? And by the way, grumbling is not your spiritual gift. God never gives you the gift of grumbling. And that's what we do. We're, and what happens to them? He brought them to the desert. And what did they grumble? Did you bring us to the desert to die? That's what they asked God. And one of the most massive understatements in all of Scripture, look at verse 5 again. Look at verse 5, in chapter 10, verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. 600,000 men plus their wives came out of Egypt. 600,000 men plus their wives. We'll assume 1.2 million just because I do the math that way. One wife, one one husband. 1.2 million people. Out of that, how many of those people actually went into Israel to to the land of Canaan? Two, Joshua and Caleb, and we assume their wives. Do you understand? Out of 1.2 million, two of them didn't die in the desert. Is that a massive understatement or what? 
In fact, Numbers 14, verses 28 and 29 says, it's going to say it right there. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. God is answering them. In this desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census. In, in the course of 40 years, let me do a little math for you. 1.2 million, they had 82.19 funerals per day. They had 82 funerals a day for 40 years. I need to learn that my actions have consequences. My grumbling, my complaining, my, my unwillingness to see the grace of God has consequences. Number two, I need to learn to follow the right example. Paul talks about in verse 6, he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. The word example there literally means that which leaves a mark, that which leaves a mark, a stamp that leaves an impression on, on clay. I've used this before. This is a little thing that, uh, that my daughter and son-in-law gave me. It's a, it's a little stamp. And I use this on all my books because sometimes I have books that I give to people and they don't find their way back to me. And you may have a book, and if you look in the front cover, you'll see it says Library of George Knight, GPN, and it's, and it's embossed on the paper. You can't erase my name out of that book that I loaned you. It's stamped, and God says, I have taken you, and I've stamped my name on you. You're an example. And people are going to look at you, and they're going to see me embossed in your, in, in your life. What kind of an example are we? There are good examples or bad examples. In verse 1, Paul says, I don't want you to, to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, were these people Jewish? No, they weren't Jewish. Most of the people in Corinth were, were Gentiles. Most of them were not Jewish. Why would he say that? Because in Romans 4.16, it says, all of us really who believe in Jesus Christ, all who come by faith to Jesus Christ in some way are, are related to Abraham because we are ch children of faith. In Genesis 15, 6, it says Abram, Abram, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as right, righteousness. And then it goes on to say right after that that all nations will be blessed through you. And some of Abraham's offerings left terrible examples. Which example do you follow? I'll never forget when I was at Northeast High School in Kansas City when I was growing up. I took an advanced algebra course, loved math. As hard as you could throw math at me until I got to calculus and then I figured everybody had lost their mind. But I loved advanced algebra, loved trigonometry, loved all of this stuff. And I did, did advanced algebra. And there was a kid who saw that I was taking advanced algebra and he was my friend, Bill Murray. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to take that class with you. No, it's not the famous Bill Murray. It's just an unknown Bill Murray. But he was my buddy. And he took advanced algebra with me, and I noticed that he was having trouble, and occasionally he was trying to sneak a look at my paper, but I didn't want him to cheat, and so I made sure that he didn't do mine. So he looked the other way, and there was a person he was cheating and, and copying the answers down. And the, the algebra teacher came later to Bill and said to Bill, Bill, if you're going to cheat, at least, at least try to get the answers from somebody who's getting the right answers. The reason that the algebra teacher knew that Bill was cheating is he had all the same wrong answers as the woman, the girl on the other side, who was getting all of them wrong. Which example do you follow? Are you, are you cheating off of someone who's getting all the answers wrong? Are you getting your answers from someone who's living a success in America 
and it's all about money or about prestige or about fame or fortune? Are you living your life following the example of Jesus Christ? I used to say to my mom, but everybody wants to do it. And she said, if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you? And in America today, I'm not sure. I think we might. Jesus talked about, uh, Paul talks about what happened, and Jesus picks up the same thing when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, talks about the, the snakes that were there who were biting the people, and the people were dying, and Moses put the, the bronze snake. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus said, I'm going to be just like that, that thing that, that I gave Moses. I'm going to be the one that if you look to me, you're going to have life. And we forget that so many times. Moses called the place where all this happened Massah, which means testing. And, and Paul says, do you want to test God? Actually, there's only one place in the Bible where it says you can test God. That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, if you want to test the Lord, give. Give until it hurts. Give until you really can't afford it. If you want to test God, give and watch what he does. Now, this is not name it and claim it. I'm not saying that he's going to make you rich. But watch ha- what happens when you give. What I know is I can't outgive God. I cannot outgive my Lord and Savior. Philippians 3.17 says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Join with others in following my example, brothers. We got to spend time with Jonathan, our, our youngest son, and I have to brag just a little bit. John has been writing music in, in the, the country western, or just country music. He would hate the thought of western. But in the country music scene, he's been writing a lot of music, and he's had some success. And as, as I was sitting there and talking to him, we were taking Ashley, uh, my granddaughter, his daughter, to school one morning. And as we were coming back, I said, John, what made the difference? He said, Dad, I just decided I was going to to get with the very best of the very best. And, and he said, I would go to these seminars and I would look for the best writer, the one who had the most success. But he said, not just with the catchy, dumb lyrics. I tried to get with someone who, who was a lyricist, someone who, who was writing poetry, someone who was really making a difference with some of the songs they were writing. And I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to be like them. And we went into a guitar store, and I was plunking around on a guitar that I really wanted to have, but I wasn't going to spend that kind of money. And a guy came in, and he saw me playing, and then he saw John. He says, hey, John, how you doing? And John gave me, called him by name. His first name is Wynn. And he said, hey, Wynn, how you doing? And he says, John, love the song that you just wrote for Keith Urban and Miranda Lambert. That's what a great song. He said, I just heard it on the radio. And John just beamed. And when the guy left, John told me the story of this, this man older than I who's had 14 number one songs. And he knew John because John had studied with him to follow his example. Look at, look at number three. Not only do I need to, to learn that my actions have consequences, not only do I need to learn to follow the right example, but I need to learn to put Christ first. In verse six, it talks about setting our hearts. It, it, it's about craving. It's, it's, about, uh, it, it's about something that you want so much. I, I need to learn to put Christ first. We talk about putting Christ first, but do we? Uh, Kathy and I, because we were on the plane a lot, we, we ended up having eight different legs of, of flights that we had from here to Orlando and then back to Kansas City and then to, to uh, Nashville and then back uh, home again. We actually we tro- we went from Orlando to Nashville by way of New Jersey. Only the airlines can figure that deal out. 
but I got air miles for it. So, I mean, we, we went to New Jersey, and, 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 and you go through all of this process, and, and, and you're trying to figure this out, but one of the things we wanted to do is have something to do on the plane, so we downloaded some episodes of Downton Abbey. You all know Downton Abbey from PBS? Great show. I mean, come on. I had to smack the person sitting next to me that was trying to lean over and see what was happening with it. Oh, that was Kathy. No, she had her own. <laughs> but we were watching this on our little electronic things, you know, when they said you could do that. And we became a huge fan. It's a different culture. It's a different view of life. The people in Downton Abbey, you know, in the early 1900s, going through World War I, they had a way of life for the people who lived in the mansion. They would do anything for the mansion. They would do anything to keep up that way of life, these, these wealthy people. For us as individuals, it doesn't make sense. And, and it's kind of like God's call to Abraham. You remember in the Old Testament, God's call to Abraham, and, and, and as Paul is talking about what's happened in the Old Testament, I think he's hearkening back to this, where, where God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and after 25 years, he gives him Isaac, and after Isaac grows up to be a teenager, past his bar mitzvah, so he's 12, at least 12, 13 years old, God calls Abraham again. By this time, Abraham's 112 or 13 years old at least. He says, take your teenage son, Isaac, and go sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, God's already told Abraham that Isaac is going to be the way that the line is going to be continued on, and he said he's the promised son, so why would he say to go give his son as a burnt offering? Why to go kill him? There's a book called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. I want to just read a couple of paragraphs because it, it really opened this up to me, and it really points out why we have to put Christ first. Listen to what he says. Many readers over the years have, have understandably objected to this story. They have interpreted the moral of this story as meaning that being cruel and violent is fine as long as you believe it is God's will. And he goes on to give a whole illustration with Kierkegaard who, who wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. And, and what Kierkegaard eventually thought is that God was just cruel. But John Levinson, he goes on, a Jewish scholar who teaches at Harvard, has written The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. In this volume, he reminds us that the ancient cultures were not as individualistic as ours. In, in other words, in the time of Abraham, it was not all about the individual, it was about the family. Family came first. Everyone was part of the family. No one lived apart from the family. These things were only sought for the entire clan. So success was never about what I did. It was what our family did, what our children would do, what our children's children would do. And he mentions a, an ancient law called primogenitor. And, and that means that two-thirds of, of all the inheritance went to the oldest son. And the oldest son could use that two-thirds to carry on the Downton Abbey. They could carry on the mission of the family. They could carry on the family name. If they split it among seven or eight or nine or ten children, there wouldn't be enough money. So two-thirds of all of the money went to the first son. In an individualistic culture like ours, an adult's identity and sense of worth is often bound up in abilities and achievements. But in ancient times, all the hopes and dreams of a man and his family rested in the firstborn son. Now Levinson, and, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Levinson goes on to argue this, basically. 
that this made sense to Abraham when God said to take Isaac because Abraham knew that he had sinned. He lied about his wife a couple of times. He, he, God said, wait for me, and he didn't wait, and Ishmael was born. There was sin in his life. He knew that he had failed God. And so when God said to Abraham, you need to take your son, your only son, the one I've given you, and go sacrifice him, Abraham knew that the oldest son had to pay for the sins of the family. Later, when the law of Moses came out, that was abundantly clear. And if you remember the whole thing with Moses leaving with all of the, the, the children of Israel, what, did God, what penalty did God exact on all the Egyptians? What happened? What was the tenth of all the plagues? The oldest son of all the Egyptians died as the death angel came through. Now, what Levinson says, according to Tim Keller, and I think he's got it right, what Levinson says is this, that if God had said to Abraham, take Sarah, your wife, and kill her, he would have thought that it was hallucination. He would not have thought that it was true. But notice, God didn't say go take Isaac and murder him. He said go offer him as a sacrifice. Now, here's my point in all of this. Stay with me. Here's my point. Would we ever put God first enough that if he asked for our eldest child, our son, would we be willing to do that? This last week, for the first time, I held my sixth grandchild, our sixth grandchild, Carter, born to John and Crystal. Helpless little baby. I looked down into his eyes. In fact, they... Crystal and the baby showed up at the airport when we arrived. I didn't think they were going to be there, and I opened the back to put the luggage in, and I saw Carter, and I began to cry. First sight of him. I hadn't touched him. He was just sleeping, just this little baby, and I saw my grandson, and I immediately began to cry. Tears just running down my face. I immediately loved this little child, and it dawned on me, would I ever be willing to give any of my children or my grandchildren to the Lord? One of the greatest men that has ever lived was John the Baptist. Jesus said there's not anyone ever been born of a woman who's a greater man than this. And when John's disciples came to him and said, what should we do about this one? John 3.30, it says, he must become greater. I must become less. Because the truth is the only way that God could deal with our sin is for the eldest son to die. John 3.16 says, God so loved us that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And all of our life is centered on that. And if we know God's love, how can we not love him that much? Here's the second part. Not only what do I need to learn, but what do I need to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 11. Just three verses. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Don't miss that. That's a huge verse. It's a warning. The fulfillment of all the ages. For thousands of years, God promised that this son would come. Jesus came. He died in our place. And now we today are in the, in the age that is the fulfillment of the ages. Look at verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We've all experienced temptation, testings. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested or tempted beyond what you can bear. And the reason I use the word test there is because it just, just depends on the context, whether it's a temptation or just a test. And God is faithful. He will not allow you, not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What do I need to do? Two things. Number one, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Faithfulness. Actually, if you want to change that, you can just write down, depend on God's faithfulness. It's not just remembering it, it's depending on it. Depend on the fact that God is faithful. God never changes. He, we evaluate our skills and our abilities. We decide we're, what we're capable of. We decide what we can do on our own. We decide what we can get done on our own. And we do everything we can, and then we just hope that God will fill in the gap. And God must stand up there in heaven and just laugh at us. Are you kidding me? You're trying that on your own. Why don't you just come to me? I'm faithful. Verse 12, if you think you're standing firm. It's crucial to quit depending on ourselves. Start depending on God. He gives us this huge call. He says, you are the one on whom the, the, the fulfillment of the age has come. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. We have more tools to win people to Jesus Christ. We have the internet. We have Facebook. We have radio. We have satellite. We have all of these things. We have television. We have all of these ways to win people to Jesus Christ. And we're so dependent so many times on all of the technology that we forget that there's somebody next door to us, somebody that we're going to eat lunch with, somebody we're going to rub shoulders with, somebody that's in our life, somebody that we care about, that we just don't tell them that Jesus died for them. And we're so busy thinking about what we can do that we just don't let God do it through us. What are we depending on? Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Sing it with me. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto miss us. This has got to be our bedrock. This has got to be our default in our thinking. This has got to be what we stand on that's strong. Not that we are able, but that God is able. Not that we can do it, but that God can do it. Not that we have the ability, but that God has the ability. Not that it's something that depends on us, but it all depends on God. That He is faithful. Always faithful. Always faithful. God is never going to quit. He's never going to stop. He's never going to give up on us. He always sees the potential. He knows where we're going. He knows what we can do with him and through him and in that test when it becomes impossible for us that's just when God gets started and when God gets started who knows what he's going to do and so many times we get to the point where we we quit on God 
Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, God never quits on you. God is faithful to the thousandth generation. Depend on God's faithfulness. Number two, rely on God's power. Temptation will seize us. Eliphon. Eliphon is, is a Greek word. It's in the perfect tense. It means it overtakes us. It surprises us. It hunts us down. This test, this temptation. We can't say that God tempts us. James chapter 1, verse 13 and don't say when you're tempted that God has tempted us. God does not tempt us. But this temptation overtakes us. Perfect tense. It's, it, it's this powerful thing that's just going to keep going and it's going to keep coming and it's going to keep, it's not going to, to give up when temptation comes. And from time to time I have Christians come to me and they say this. God would never give me something that I could not handle. God will never give me more than I can bear. There's a theological term for that. Baloney. David's in the, running from Saul, and he writes in the Psalms, Lord, why am I still in this miry pit? I can't do this another day. And he's lying in a cave knowing his family is at risk, and, and he's writing these songs, and he's, he's pouring out his soul, and he says, Lord, if you don't come, I'm not going to make it another hour. I'm not going to make it another day. The truth is there are Christians all over this world today who are starving. There are Christians who are being tortured for Christ. There are Christians all over the place who have much more than they can bear except for the one thing that God has made the way out. What is it? Him. Him, his power, his strength, his wisdom, his guidance, him. He'll give us the power to bear it, to escape from it, to find victory over it. It's not what we can do. It's not that what we can bear. It's what God will do in us and through us. We had a house in Holtville, and when we first got the house, we had some of the ugliest tile known to mankind that was in the front foyer, and I thought I said to Kathy, this is a small front foyer. It's about oh, three feet by maybe six, seven feet. This is an ugly tile, but I can take care of this. This is, I mean, of all the things that we're going to do in this house, this will be the simple one. Don't you love it when you make stupid statements like that? It was ceramic tile. I mean, how hard could it be? I've taken out ceramic tile before. I, I, had, a, I had a sledgehammer, and I used a sledgehammer. For four hours, I used a sledgehammer and a cold steel chisel, and, and I did everything I could, and I had chipped out about a foot and a half of the six feet of tile in four hours. I said to Kathy, this is not going to ever happen. When I went to work the next day, I was trying to write, and I could not even write a sentence because I couldn't hold a pen in my hand. My hands were so sore and, and fatigued from the night before. And, and I said something to someone who came in. They said, oh, I have a power chisel. And I said, you knew I was, well, you didn't act as if you needed it. I need it. Power chisel, you understand. I mean, this was a big, big power chisel. In about 30 minutes, I took care of it because I had the power that I needed to do the job. Why are we still smacking something with a sledgehammer when God says your Holy, his Holy Spirit resides within us? Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know what? The hope, the real hope, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. So many different illustrations I could give. I want to just close with one who is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, the story of Joseph, and I'll 
just end with his, just a, a brief glimpse into his story. Because this is what he did. He, he depended on God's faithfulness. He relied on God's power. Joseph, if you remember when he was a young man, he was loved by his father more than the others. Jacob loved him so much and, and he made no bones about it. He gave him gifts that he didn't give to the other sons. He gave him the cool clothes. He gave him the coat of many colors. He, and we don't know for sure what that is. We don't know if it was striped or uh, a technicolor dream coat. We don't know what it was, but it was a coat that nobody else got. And it set him apart as the favored son. And he wasn't the oldest son. This should not have happened. And Joseph had these dreams, and he told his brothers that they were going to bow down to him. And then another time he said his brothers and his father and mother would come and bow down to him in the dreams that he had that God gave him. And he wasn't very wise with that. And his brothers hated him, so they tried to... One day when he came to bring them lunch and they were out there working the sheep and working the flocks and a nasty, horrible job, he comes to bring them lunch and they decide they're going to kill him. And At the last minute it gets changed and he gets sold into slavery and he goes to Egypt. And he goes to the house of Potiphar. I mean, he's sold into slavery and yet somebody buys him out of the slavery. God bought us out of the slavery. And Joseph goes to the house of Potiphar, and and he does exactly what his master would have him to do. He serves the Lord faithfully. He serves the Lord with integrity. He serves the Lord in the right way. And Potiphar's wife sees him and says, I want to lie with this man. I want to have a sexual relationship with this man. And Joseph says, I can't do it. In fact, in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, he says, how could I do this this wicked thing and sin against God? In verse 10, it says, He refused to be in the house or or even be near her. And yet one day when he comes in because he has to because his job is to do that and his master has trusted him with all of the accounts of the house and and he continues to give him raises and, and promotions until he's the top servant in all the household. And he comes in and Potiphar's wife grabs his coat, rips his coat off of him and says, lie with me. Come on, let's have this relationship. And Joseph flees and, and she falsely accuses him. And you say, Pastor, if this is how you're supposed to resist temptation, it didn't work out too well because he ended up going back to prison. He stays in prison from the time he's 17, other than this event with Potiphar, until he's 34. 17 years in prison. But in the end, he's made number two in the kingdom. In the, in the end, God elevates him and exalts him and uses him to save all of his brothers, the very brothers who sold him into slavery. Because when you're tested, God always makes a way. Let's pray. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I don't know about you. How about you? Have you been going through any testing? Anything in your life that, that you feel like it's just a little more than you can bear? I want to do something. I don't normally do this. I want everybody to have your eyes closed, your head bowed. If you'd like for me to pray for you today, just raise your hand. I'm going through a test right now. Wow. People all over this congregation. Yes, I see all of those hands. Father, you know the hearts of every person here today. We're struggling. We're struggling with so many things in our life, with health, with finances, with, with things that we don't even want to mention in public. We're, we're struggling with our family, with our children, with our, with our situation. We're struggling, Father, and you are the only one that we can go to. Thank you for making the way. 
Thank you that the way is not a path, but a person. Thank you, Father, that the way is not a process or a procedure, but it's your son. So, Father, for each one who raised their hand and for those that didn't even have the strength to do that, may they run to you today. May they understand that you still have a plan and a purpose for them. And may they walk in it and find the joy of serving you again and find real hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.